Thank you all for being here today. Very important guest. I want to get right to this. We have him for about 40 minutes or so. Dr. Peter Hotez, co-director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital, dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College, trained as a pediatrician. Dr. Hotez is also involved in the development of Corbivax, which is an interesting new vaccine therapy that we will begin to talk about. And at the time uh, we are conducting this interview live, it's a very auspicious day. Our laws as it pertains to substances are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous. I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell you think I learned that? I'm just saying, you go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it, I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. Since the beginning of the pandemic, nearly one in five Americans has reported consuming an unhealthy amount of alcohol. Could be you, but only 10% of them are actually getting the help they need. Reframe is a neuroscience-based smartphone app that helps users cut back or quit drinking alcohol altogether. Using evidence-based tools, techniques, and content, Reframe guides users through a personalized program to help them reach their goals. Comprised of daily tasks, a comprehensive toolkit, a community forum, and accountability guides, Reframe is a modern, accessible, and affordable resource that can help anyone looking to reevaluate their relationship with alcohol. Reframe is backed by Harvard University and Emory University Schools of Medicine, and it is ranked the number one alcohol reduction smartphone app worldwide with over 350,000 downloads. With Reframe, there's no stigma, just science, no labels, just support. To learn more, go to joinreframeapp.com slash Dr. Drew. Use the code Dr. Drew for 25% off your first month or your annual subscription. That's at joinreframeapp.com slash Dr. Drew. Uh, Dr. Hotez, welcome to the program. I believe uh, a Nobel Prize is at least been discussed in your future. Well, let's see. I got nominated uh, for it along with my uh, science partner for the last 20 years, Dr. Batazzi. So uh, we'll see. Uh, I don't exactly know how it all works, but it's, uh, it was certainly uh, unexpected and very exciting. Congratulations. Very, very few people can make said claim. So uh, I have admired your uh, evenness and approach to what the mess we've been in for the last couple of years from the very beginning. Uh, I, I know you've been out there on the media all along, and you're trained as a pediatrician. Is that correct? You Did you practice pediatrics for a while? Yeah, I was a, Dr. Drew, I was an MD, PhD at uh, Rockefeller and Cornell in New York, then did, um, interested in developing vaccines. So I did pediatric and pediatric infectious disease training, and I'm a professor of pediatrics and molecular virology, although I've stopped seeing patients, but to focus on the lab. and. Okay. And, and so the, re the reason I asked about the patients is I feel like people with clinical judgment have been sort of left out of the, I don't know, the ability to express themselves or policy uh, setting. Uh, you, you know, it's it's been like, for instance, here in Los Angeles, our public health director is a sociologist and she's been making very, very strange sort of uh, commitments that have been very harmful from a medical standpoint. Do you share my concerns that the the patient yeah, I mean, decision-making has been left well, out of this pandemic? And it's not just decision-making. It's how you talk to people. You know, one of the things you learn, you know, when you're a resident and a, a physician and in practice is you learn how to deliver bad news and you learn how to be empathic and and be supportive and and being able to express things a certain way and i do too often i think we've we have lost that because let's face it there's not been a lot of good news uh, these these last two years and 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 the other thing that i try to do is be very authentic and honest with my emotions i mean i've, I've actually cried a couple of times on you know cnn or msnbc and and I said, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm crying. And just, you know, then you realize that people respond to it because they want to know 
that you're not just uh, some abstract talking head that you really are feel passionately you care about what you're saying. So, so, and, and no yeah. question that you know, being a pediatrician, especially um, in an acute care setting. Cause I, when I, back when I attended pediatrics, it was in pediatric infectious disease consult. So pretty sick kids, you know, immunocompromised kids, uh, kids with HIV AIDS or he- hematology oncology patients. So, so I think yeah. that that served me well. Like it does you. No, and, and I think, well, but I think our, our peers generally are, are here because we care. And, and it's, it's, it's actually the most caring, I know, and people unfortunately don't understand or believe this, but the most, the most caring um, group in, in the medical world is, it, are the, the, the professionals on the ground. So it'd be the physicians, the nurses. Now we have physician extenders in the mix a little, a little too, but these people are there and doing that work because they care profoundly about what they're doing. And they're the ones really protecting and representing. And when we get left out of the conversation, it's it's very, very concerning to me. You know, I, I was, well, I, you know, I get what just, you're tilting just to at. Make that one, Go ahead. Just to make that one point, you know, I mean, I still remember when I was a resident of the pediatric intensive care patients I took care of, or, or especially the kids who died. And imagine now being a healthcare professional, a nurse or a respiratory therapist or a doc in an ICU setting in a big hospital where COVID is striking and taking care of dead and dying patients all the time for two years. And just, uh, you know, that's, it's unimaginable the kind of emotional toll that must take. Well, I, I, actually, that was a little mysterious to me because I worked in intensive care medicine for many years. 80 to 90% of the people we treated did not go home. And when they did go home, they went home to horrible chronic disease. And so ICU nurses and doctors are exquisitely attuned to the death and dying phenomenon. And so I had to go into the units and go, what, why is this different? And they, they had trouble articulating it, actually. Most of them said because there's too many young people coming in that don't go out. And that that's a change. That's the new thing. In, in pediatrics, you guys... That's why I could never be a pediatrician. I just couldn't do it. I, I, seeing children, I, I just can't do it. It takes God's my worth. breath away. Yeah, it's definitely a, God's. It worth. takes my breath away. But 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 I want to make the point though that both of us worked in HIV and AIDS for many years, and we learned how to shape behaviors around infectious disease. It, it, that illness really taught. That was a that was a a pandemic with a one hundred percent fatality rate, not a one percent, a one hundred percent, and we learned how to talk to people and to shape their behavior. It was not through shaming and mandates. What, what happened to us? Why, why did we suddenly go from one to, to one, something that we know how to do and, and works to something that was so very, very different? Well, I think, you know, the dynamics are a bit different in that this is a, a highly contagious respiratory pathogen. And, you know, when you have an infection with a reproductive number that's as high as uh, the COVID-19 viruses, the SARS-2 coronavirus, the more dependent you become on vaccination strategies. And, and I think that that's the game changer as opposed to uh, HIV AIDS, which has its own unique mechanisms of, of transmission. So I think that- Okay, under, wait, that wait, I wanna make sure I hear you. Yeah, I wanna make sure I hear you because that's actually a profound thing. So, so you're saying with HIV and AIDS, we had treatments, but really our problem was behavior. We needed to change behavior. And now we need to deploy vaccine. That, that's the mandate. And deplo- deploying vaccine therapies is different, has behavioral elements to it, but different than shaping behavior per se. A little bit. Well, it's also converged a little bit more now with HIV AIDS because, of course, we have good antiretroviral drugs. And that, you know, as you know, is yeah. lowering viral loads and, yeah. and having more of a preventive yeah. Uh, approach, but yeah. when you have a highly, I mean, right. you know, the only way you were going to eradicate smallpox was to vaccinate, right? And the only, and I still right. think the only way we're going to eradicate or eliminate or definitely get COVID under control is vaccinate, especially vaccinated low, low and mi- middle income country populations. Otherwise, this is going to continue to haunt us. And, and so, and I'm assuming your your point is that that we will get more and awful variants potentially because of all the viral replication. Well, I mean, we, we, mother nature's telling us what she's going to do. We got Delta, the Delta variant out of a unvaccinated population out of India at the beginning of last year. And then Omicron out of an unvaccinated population in Southern Africa towards the end of last year. 
So that the message is, as long as we refuse to vaccinate the African continent, Southeast Asia and Latin America, she's going to, Mother Nature's going to continue to hurl new serious variants of concern at us. And and once we get through this Omicron wave, I'm not confident we're going to have much natural immunity from Omicron. I think it's going to behave more like upper respiratory mm-hmm. coronavirus, short-term protection. We're going to be vulnerable again. And that's why I'm pushing so hard on on the White House, the Biden administration to step up vaccinating, um, helping to vaccinate low and middle income countries in the World Health Organization. And and hopefully our vaccine will, will have a role in that. Now, now uh, I want us to go to the vaccines. The the vaccines have a decay in their efficacy as well. Uh, particularly, I've noticed the boosters. I mean, they are very effective initially, and then it seems like it's kind of, you know, eight, 10 weeks out, it's not, not the same. Uh, are you worried that we're going to have to go through, if, if to the extent that we deploy mRNA vaccines, are you worried we're going to have to go through just constant uh, updating and revaccination? So this is this is my big concern, because I don't know if you were listening to the kinds of things I was saying up to a couple of months ago, you know, I was one of the first to say this is a three-dose vaccine, and 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 that's because giving the first two doses close together, we know what happens when we do this for pediatric vaccinations, do a series of primary immunizations, and then you need to wait six months to a year and boost, and then you get long-lasting, durable protection. And so for the longest time, I've been saying since January last year, I said, it's not one and done, two and done, it'll be three and done. And what was unique about what I was saying as one of the first to say, this is a three-dose vaccine. For me, the disappointment is that I would have thought after the third immunization, this would have held up for a while, that you know we wouldn't have to boost again for five, six, maybe 10 years, certainly not like what we're seeing now. So we are seeing this kind of short-term duration of, of protective immunity, at least against symptomatic illness, that's only holding up a few months. And so the debate among with my colleagues is, is it simply because of the Omicron variant that is so different that the virus neutralizing antibodies aren't holding up, or is there an issue with mRNA vaccines that we that the durability is is not so long lasting? And so that's to me that's going to be one of the big questions moving forward for the country in terms of adopting a long term strategy for vaccination. Do we stay exclusively with the mRNA approach, or do we do we branch out? Would it be possible that one of the errors we made was the one-month duration between VAX1 and VAX2? Perhaps if we waited three months, as many European countries have done, we might get more protracted immunity. Do you, do you believe that? Well, I think that, that may in fact be true. I think, but in defense of the policy that that when these vaccines were first rolled out, I think we were just lose the loss of life was just catastrophic, right? Especially in some of the nursing homes. And I think the whole clinical trial plan was to stop the deaths and to move as quickly as we can to fully vaccinate the human population. So so I don't have a problem with the fact that the first two doses were given three or four weeks apart, depending if it was Pfizer or Moderna. But I think the mistake was in how that was messaged and not making it clear to the American people that, hang on, yeah, we will likely need a third immunization at some point down the line. We can't tell you yet whether it's going to be six months or a year, but don't be surprised if that... And I think if we had done that and set expectations accordingly, I think it would have helped because we got into this terrible situation where only about a quarter of the U.S. population wound up getting that third immunization. And and the declining protection against Omicron after two doses is pretty significant. It's yeah. I I have I have learned uh, in this pandemic well, we're having something bleed in here. I mean, is that on? Is that uh, your clubhouse? Is somebody uh, on your clubhouse? Maybe it is. Somebody is. Yes, whoever that is. Meet yourself. Yes, you're right. Go to the audience. Um. Uh. One of the things I have learned in this pandemic, and it's your the point you're making here about our messaging, is that it it. It has seemed to me that the the one of the grave and tragic errors is certainty and hubris, or at least displaying certainty and hubris. Uh, that has not been. Yeah, I mean, it's not aged well. It's not aged well, well and it's not scientific. Well, I, it's never scientific to me. Well, well, so you know, one of the things that I've noticed about the way I talk when I'm on the cable news channels that's a bit different 
is I do go, I explain my assumptions. I go into some level of complexity, like we just did just right now, you know, why we, why I always mm -hmm. thought we needed a third dose. And I think the mistake that I'm hearing from the federal U S federal agency, CDC, and is, is they don't do that. They don't provide their underlying assumptions and they, and right. there's still this old fashioned way of communicating. Like you have to talk to the American people, like they're in the fourth grade or sixth grade. And I found yeah, it's not that's true. Right. I, I find that I, I find I that and I think you do that. You do that really well as well. I, I mean, listen, I think, I, Dr. Hotez, you know, I, I feel like, like that's what we learned. And, yeah. yeah. That's what we learned during HIV and AIDS was you be, be completely transparent, give them the thinking and give them maybe some humor and music to kind of help soften the message. And then, and then let, let them be adults and be, uh, uh you yeah, know, talk uh, to them like uh, good I mean, I talk to them like like colleagues, right? And um, and yeah. and people and it and people and the thing that I think our health communicators haven't realized is the American people are willing to tolerate a surprising level of complexity if their lives depend on and it, uncertainty. The yeah, and uncertainty. Yeah, depend on it. Yeah, you know, you know. yeah. Well, but we know that from dealing with patients. I mean, that's how we, we don't right. we don't we don't we don't ever hide things from our patients. We we you know we may have to tell them multiple times to get them to really fully understand things, but it, it's not about uh, a shell game or saying you can't yeah. handle the truth, which is what yeah, it feels I, like. I think from on, what may have happened these days. was, yeah, I think what happened. You know, in some ways, we've got you know two parts of the country. One part that's all in on whatever medical interventions are recommended hey doc just tell me what to do to protect me and my family yeah. I'm all in yeah and then there's yeah. another segment yeah. of the country that's no matter what they say they're not going to do and i think they tried to converge that with one voice and it wound up coming out like baby talk that was unsatisfying to both <laughs> that's very true that's really funny so one of the things you were talking about very early in the pandemic i i believe it was you and please correct me if i if i'm remembering this wrong but you started you were you 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 do talk about your thinking as you're being interviewed and one of the things i heard you saying was i don't know this is a new technology it's probably good but what's wrong with the adenovirus vectors what what's wrong with using something a more traditional platform and and i and i that that struck deep with me i actually ended up taking johnson and johnson just kind of you know cuz it was early and i thought all right i i did i did i hear you correctly first of all was that was that your thinking at the time well, what what I meant was, you know, in some ways, both the adenovirus is also new because we've never given it to large populations before as well. And and so my uh, one of the things that I pushed really hard for was to balance out the portfolio of Operation Warp Speed with some of the newer technologies, which were very exciting. And you know, you could rapidly immunize a, a new population, a, a, an immunologically naive population, very quickly, but you know, in the long run, you don't know what's going to work out the best and balance it out with some old school vaccines like our recombinant protein vaccine, which is made in yeast. It's a vegan vaccine. It's the same technology used to make the recombinant hepatitis B vaccine that parents have been giving to their kids for decades and people understand it and trust it. And I think if they had balanced out the portfolio a bit more, it wouldn't have gotten us into so much trouble. Certainly that's true on the global scale because you can't make I, I, I mRNA and adenovirus vaccines at this level. And, yeah, all, and all by the, the way, uh, you know, all, all I, the weird and by the way, I got the I got the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine and I'm grateful for it. And it yeah. may have saved yeah. my life. No, my whole family, my whole family got it too. It yeah. It, it's just still down to me. I was like, eh, I just want to get one vaccine. And I remember Dr. Hotez talking about that. All right, just go get Johnson Johnson. It, it, I, I didn't really care. I, I was I just was in a hurry to get vaccinated. And uh, uh, there's a long story of me getting sick trying to get the vaccine. But but tell us more about it's Corbivax. Is that how you pronounce it? So um, at our Texas Children's Center for Vaccine Development, we use more traditional technologies because we mostly make vaccines for parasitic diseases for the poor. Um, so schistosomiasis vaccine, Chagas disease vaccines. And about 10 years ago, we got approached by a coronavirus group that said, you know, we really need your help making coronavirus vaccines because nobody cared about those either. And they were orphaned. And so we used, did what we always did, which is um, use our traditional platform technology. It worked really well for SARS and MERS. And then when the COVID-19 sequence came along, we, we flipped it around and made that COVID-19 vaccine. 
And now we've licensed it to four developing country vaccine manufacturers. They call themselves that, the Developing Country Vaccine Manufacturers Network, uh, Biologically in India, Biopharma in Indonesia, and Incepta in Bangladesh. And Patrick Songshung from the LA area has um, created immunity bio for Southern Africa. No, vac no patent, no strings attached, and now BioE, um, the first one we gave, we provided to, we helped in the co-development, is now produced 250 million doses, and it just got released for emergency use authorization in India. And so we're kind of off to the races, because there's the great thing about this vaccine, there's no limit to the amount you can make. A simpler technology, one of the best safety profiles, one of the least expensive of all the COVID-19 vaccines, simple refrigeration that's been given to kids for decades. So you know, when you go down the checklist, it, it checks a lot of boxes for global health. So we, we hope this really starts to make a difference. I have, and congratulations, I'm, I'm sure it will. But I, I've also, you know, when I run into vaccine hesitancy, uh, there's sort of no talking people out of their concerns about mRNA vaccines, but very often I'll have people say, oh, I would take Novavax, when's that coming out? I'll take a protein vaccine. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm, I suspect it'd be the same as it pertains to Corbivax. Uh, we're getting, we're getting on a multiple, I'm, I'm getting emails every day saying, hey, doc, uh, I'm not taking that mRNA vaccine, which I try to talk them out of because that's all we have right now. Yeah. And yeah. but I said, but when's your vaccine going to be available in the U.S.? Because I'll take that in a heartbeat. But unfortunately, we don't have any any U.S. government support or any U.S. industrial partner to have it made available in the U.S., which is too bad because I think it could help, help close that vaccine hesitancy gap for some people. Yeah, it, it absolutely would, and, and at least I, there's no doubt that it would, and it, and you could just distribute it on a, sort of a limited basis for motivated people, because there's there's actually within the anti-vax crowd there are motivated people. People want a vaccine; they just don't want That's that right. vaccine. Uh, yeah, yeah, it and, comes uh, in all I, I'm hoping Novavax. Yeah, there is a substance. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm hoping Novavax fills some of that 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 gap. Um, is there that to me is this is all sort of there's parts of this pandemic that have been sort of scandalous to me. And I've just added another thing to the list, which is the fact that you can't find a U.S. partner for a really good-looking vaccine. I, I don't understand that. Is, is there, am I missing something? Well, the market's flooded, right? I mean, there's no financial incentive for a pharma company to go into that space because there's not well, a sufficient, they don't see a sufficient market to justify the investment to um, and you know, there is though. That's, that's, there's a that, buyer of last resort. There's a buyer yeah, of last resort. Yeah, the U.S. government could buy a bunch, and that would motivate the manufacturer, and then they can distribute it. This because the the other one, my second scandal, is that they bought all the Paxlovid and the Molnupiravir, and you can't get it. I, I'm desperate for it all the time with my patients, and you can't get it because they do such an awful job at distributing. But that's scandal number two. But why not them buy your vaccine? I mean, the the vaccine that might win a Nobel Peace Prize, they're not in the market for. Come on. Well, maybe I need to bring you to my next meeting with the U.S. government. It's not like we haven't been trying. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we're trying to focus on where we can make some uh, make some gains. And right now it's the low and middle income countries yeah. of, uh, Africa, Asia, and Latin which America, is, at least we can which, which know, is, do that. Which is great, which is and necessary, of course. Uh, and by the way, I didn't mention that, uh, Peter has a book preventing the next pandemic valid, that valid diplomacy in a time of anti-science. You can also find more at Peter Hotez, H O T E Z.org and Twitter at Peter Hotez. Um, so, uh, and you know, I and I do not want to in any way take the winds out of the sails of going to the the countries that don't have vaccine. I, I that is that is my lingering concern is that something's going to emerge where there's massive replication and that and we could have done something. Well, about the point it. is that's, with our vaccine, really there's the no limit threat. to the amount you can scale, right? It's not like mRNA where there are limits to the amount you can make at least until you you know figure it out later on. Right now, you can hit the ground running, and so there's no. It doesn't have to be a zero-sum game, I think, with, with our vaccine. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to complete my list of, of what I feel have been scandals, and you're now on the list with <laughs> lack of funding for something that sounds like a no-brainer. The scandal well, two being the distribution no, the, of antivirals. And, you know, that, that, that first few months of the pandemic, you know, we were kind of locked out of Operation Warp Speed. We got a little bit of money from NIH, not much, and you know, about 400000 which helped us. 
but I was basically running, raising money privately in Texas and, and other philanthropies. Fortunately, you know, part of that this, is your story. I don't know if friend. you've ever been here, this yeah. huge Texas medical center. And there's a, in Houston's a very philanthropic environment and Texas Children's Hospital and Baylor supported us a lot. So, so, and then it worked out well, but it was a, it was a, you know, it was a tough time because, you know, giving bad news on the cable news networks and then you get off your interview and then you're out, uh, as I call it, snoring for science, um, trying to raise some funds. And, and, uh, <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> I, I have been down there. My, my interaction with the medical community in Houston has been through the Menningers Institute. And again, astonished mm -hmm. at the support that they get from the Houston community. So, so I know that it's a, it's a great medical uh, sort of community, city. Um, but my third, my third piece of my scandal, the one, two, three scandals were the distribution of antivirals, funding for your vaccine now, and then the fact that physicians froze in the early parts of the pandemic and didn't do anything to, for their patients except said, go home and come back when you're sicker. And, it's, and I understand it was a very confusing time, but I, the, the scandal part for me was it felt like well, I, what I think I was seeing was that many of our colleagues are now employees and they became scared of their employer and scared of running afoul of them by doing their job and just sort of froze. That's that's scandalous to me. That's scandalous. Well, I, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, with regards to the Paxlovid, I'm sad to learn that it's still not available. I'm, I'm hoping that will change very soon because that, that has the ability to make a big difference. Um, I think, you oh, know, yes. in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, when it hit the U.S., I think people thought it was going to be more like the original SARS and they, you know, in terms of when respiratory support, I don't think people understood that it was, you know, it was a cardiovascular disease as much as and a neurologic disease as much as anything else. And so, mm -hmm. so the, I feel very, very bad for my colleagues in New York who had to learn that the hard way when that first big wave hit uh, in, in March and April. Uh, and New York was really caught totally off guard, in part because the Centers for Disease Control missed the entry of the virus from Europe and let it let it incubate for weeks before anybody picked it up. That was just a horrible, scary time. Yes, I, I agree with you, and, and completely un unanticipated. But but I got to say, to you know, they they're a, that group, uh, the, you know, the New York medical community, in terms of their responsiveness and their improvisation. Was it was rather extraordinary, even though they were hit with something they didn't understand. And oh, within yeah. a no, week, they, they, I, yeah, within a week, I heard them talking about cytokine activation, something that I didn't know. They they already understood this was part of the story. That was remarkable, remarkable. Well, it was the, it was the blood clots that you know, and the fact that you, they were getting coronary artery thrombotic events and strokes, and and I think that that took everybody by surprise, and so that they had to learn pretty quickly mm -hmm. to put them on anticoagulants and then the, then the steroids and and you're right the fact that they called an audible and they were able to make that adjustment quickly um, and they saved a lot of lives no question about it yeah th that so so it's interesting so i should balance my scandals list with the uh the behavior of our peers in in the in the hospitalist population the inpatient side was extraordinarily responsive it was the it was sort of the entry level, you know, the entrance to the medical uh, world that really was sort of disappointing to me. It, explain to people, just so they make sure we, we're sure they all understand what we're talking about when we talk about as a neurological, endovascular, polysystem disease rather than just this respiratory problem. Well, I think what you saw was the activation of clotting pathways. So you had this virus, unlike the original SARS back in the early 2000s, this one was causing uh, blood clots to form in in your in your blood vessels and that was a major reason why you had a lot of difficulty uh oxygenating patients and so people were coming in to the emerge to the emergency room looking reasonably well and wound up having oxygen saturation rates that you know, were incredibly low and, and and that took time to figure out and the fact that so many of the emts were being called because the patient had been seemingly well and then deteriorated so quickly and was basically moribund by the time the EMTs arrived. So understanding the, the importance of oxygen monitoring, I think that was a uh, critical early mid-course adjustment.
Yeah. And, and even within the sort of larger vessel uh, intravascular coagulation, I, I'm convinced, you know, I had bad COVID the first go around. And I think there was a, there's a lot of microvascular, there's something going on with no endothelial question. activation no above, well, you know, above, well, also, above and beyond clotting. Well, that, yeah. well, that we know, but also, you know, the, one of the me, one of the most striking findings that I saw were in the long COVID patients. So the, the UK uh, health system, national health system, has a biobank of of MRIs. So basically, any patient in the NHS that got an MRI, it's cataloged. <laughs> and what they were able to do is bring those individuals. That was all. They had forty thousand brain scans pre-pandemic, and were able to bring them back after COVID. And that you know that's a story that has really not been fully told, which is that so many patients have gray matter brain degeneration, and evidence on their scans of cognitive decline that make that resembled people that should be much older. And so that to me is one of the real reasons that I'm so concerned about getting COVID is, yes, I don't want to get hospitalized or be in an ICU, but I also don't want to get COVID. I don't want to get gray matter brain degeneration yeah. and, 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 it, and I still have a lot of things I want to do in life. And, you no, know, I and understand. I think, and, and I, and I, I definitely had a whiff of it. Yeah. I, well, I kept telling people, I feel like I've been hit in the head. Like it felt like a major right. head trauma. That's yeah. exactly what it, I, right. I've never had major head trauma, but I just imagine that's what this feels like. Right. And right. Uh, I got over and I had long, I had long COVID. I had long everything. And I got over uh, a lot of my long fog by learning new languages. I just went right at it and started mm -hmm. really, and it cleared rather that's quickly with, with use. And, yeah. yeah. Isn't that interesting? Um, so uh, we have to go in just a couple minutes. I, I just want to answer. But I think with, a point uh, is going to be couple. we're going to need a generation of neuropsychologists to really understand <laughs> all of the long-term impact. And and so even when we get well, past this pandemic, it will still haunt us for a while. You know, uh, speaking of Menninger, Dr. Menninger, when he was still alive and practicing, he was practicing in, in the end of the 19-teens and the early 1920s. And he was on the record at that moment saying that he believed most of the psychiatric and neurodevelop neuropsychiatric problems he was seeing was the result of the 1918 flu. He, he yeah, and he documented multiple, very multiple psychiatric symptoms, including psychotic disorders, which now have been reported with this one. So it's very, well, very I interesting think, stuff. You know, well, you know, the other interesting side note to this is, you know, all the things we're learning about the mechanisms of long COVID in terms of in, in mental health, in terms of autoantibodies and microglial activation. Mm -hmm. As I'm looking mm -hmm. at this, I'm saying, boy, I bet this is gonna help us understand things like chronic fatigue syndrome or- Oh my God, yes, 100%, um, or, 100%, 100%. Or, or, or fibromyalgia. This is gonna give us now new tools to really understand oh. the basis of this, I think. Yeah, uh, 100%. There, I, I'm working with multiple different groups on this. We have one group that's looking at non-classical monocytes who don't go through their normal apoptotic cycle and have persistent spike protein within their cytoplasm. And they are migrating into the central nervous system where they don't belong and are correlating highly with long long COVID. So again, we're getting into the depths and, and some certain VEGF and other cytokines that remain elevated. I mean, this is I, I worked in a psychiatric hospital when lots of people came in with chronic fatigue and the psychiatrist right. did very strange things to them to try to treat it because it's disabling. It's very disabling. But this, and, but this and, is uh, going to give us a window. Now we're going to get at it. We're going to get at it. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, it's an exciting time to be a neuroscientist. No question. So I, I know you have to leave us. Uh, I, and again, I want to say congratulations on the Nobel Prize uh, nomination. But He's I want to about fifteen minutes. Well, I want to end with a couple of questions that may take a minute to answer. Uh, one is, um, what do, what do we get right? What do we get right? Do you, as you look at as we do a little postmortem on where we've been, are there things that we did properly? I think so. I think we did. I think we did a good job streamlining some of the clinical development for vaccines and therapeutics and and uh, some people were put off by the emergency use authorization process but i i think it made us realize that there are things that we can do in parallel rather than dragging it out years so i think we may have some new opportunities mm -hmm. to now accelerate how we move new interventions from discovery into the clinic even outside of infectious diseases i think that that's going to be uh, ex extremely useful. I also think it shows that it, when 
when people are willing to throw money at problems, um, it, it can make a difference. Um, on the other hand, I think there are some lessons learned that still really worry me. I mean, why was there this epic fail at the Centers for Disease Control? Why, why did we miss the entry of the virus from Europe? Why um, didn't we figure out a way to create a national public health response? Why do we miss the boat on genomic sequencing? And why can't we measure uh, vaccine effectiveness? And, and clearly all of this transcends administrations. And, you know, you know the, the CDC is supposed to be the premier public health agency. So how do we fix that? And, and, and make it uh, the premier agency again. I think that's going to be uh, an important uh, lesson learned. And also the fact that we still no, have no commitment to global health and we still think that you know, the, the, the U.S. is kind of walled off from the rest of the world. And I think that that's a lesson learned as well. So there, there were some good things. I think we, we also saw this with America's view of scientists. On the one hand, I think the American people appreciated hearing hearing from scientists, and and that was a real privilege for me. On the other hand, the anti-vaccine aggression, you know, that's been scary. I mean, we've had two hundred thousand unvaccinated Americans over the last seven months needlessly lose their lives to COVID because they refused to get vaccinated. And trying to understand the forces behind that, how we got to that very dark place where people didn't trust the government or science or or and and outright refused to take something that would have saved their lives. And I think that's going to haunt us for a long time. I, I think you pointed at it already. It was with that messaging where, you know, you can't handle the truth. I'm going to treat you like a four-year-old. That was a grave, 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 and they're continuing it. It seems like they can—they're not turning back from that. Occasionally, occasionally they'll—they'll they'll sort of say something like, "Yeah, we wonder if this is the case," and people—people people grab to it like like people that are hungry. They—they—they they, they want them to tell them what they're thinking, and yet. Well, but you also, no you also had this issue. Them? You also had this issue where you know, you had members of Congress, you know, openly disparaging vaccines and. And, disc and saying they're political instruments of control, that was very damaging. And some of the conservative news outlets at night, you know, were really, you know, did a lot of damage. And so we're also dealing with the consequences of that as well. It, just back to the mRNA really quickly. Do, do you have any concerns about the, the side effects that are uh, flying around a little bit? Because I started thinking, well, let, me, let me frame it a little differently. Because I started yeah. thinking, gosh, you know, when I... Before mRNA vaccines, if I saw an episode of myocarditis, that was a ma that was a major problem. That is like serious mm -hmm. illness, and that person may get cardiomyopathy down the line. Could have an arrhythmia. We we toss around myocarditis like no, no, no big deal, just myocarditis. Myocarditis is a very serious medical illness. It, do you have any concerns about that? It's you know one per thirty five hundred now in, in adolescent males, and it's mild, and it is does seem to be reversible and all that good stuff. But does it worry at all? Well, you know, also the numbers are still a bit all over the map too. I'm, you know, hearing one in ten thousand, and that that does make a difference. But you know, the, I think the it does worry me. But what also worries me is the extent of cardiovascular disease in people who get COVID nineteen, with, with even mm -hmm. you know higher rates of myocarditis, and not just myocarditis, but um, thrombotic events and strokes, and and uh, and you know and and uh, you know, myocardial infarctions. I think those are the kinds of things that I always try to keep that in perspective as well, that yes, um, there are uncommon side effects, but on balance, there's no question getting vaccinated is still going to save your life. And, and how you frame that, I think, is really important because look at the consequences to come back to that again. I mean, 200,000 Americans could be here oh, today. Yeah. No, there's no doubt. If if you're over if you're over fifty that that risk reward clearly shakes out, but if you're yeah well even among even among some of, even among young people you know yeah. we're seeing a lot of you know you know twenty thirty no I know but at the rate of at the I understand that we you know but in older folks it's you know five percent one percent in in nineteen year olds it's point zero 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 one three and you know and the vaccine is point zero zero two myocarditis so it's like. Mm. How do you, I, I don't know, I can't, I'm glad I'm not making that decision. I, I always tell people to talk to their pediatrician because it's, it's a hard one for me.
You're taking a healthy yeah, person I, and making I, them sick for something that may not make them sick. So I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 you know, I, you know, well, I guess we'll agree to disagree on this one, but I think it's really important that young people get vaccinated because we are seeing so many young adults go into the hospital, uh, not only from cardiovascular disease, but neurologic injury. A lot. We are seeing a significant number of people who are uh, losing their lives. And no question, when you look at the risk versus benefits of getting vaccinated, even for a young person, it overwhelmingly comes out in the side of, of getting vaccinated. We've lost too many young people uh, in, in this country. And again, the consequences of, of long COVID. And, you know, this is not a time in your life, you know, when you're 25 or 30 and, you know, maybe signing up your first mortgage or trying to go to graduate school or, or starting a family. This is not a time in your life you want to be neurologically debilitated from long COVID. Uh, and then what, what the last question would be, what, what keeps you up at night? Um, what keeps me up at night is we're not going to vaccinate the world and we're going to continue to be buffeted by, by COVID-19 variants and, and the tolerance of the American people for taking preventive measures is going down pretty, pretty significantly by the day. And, and so that's going to set us up for, uh, more political instability in the country if we can't finally get rid of COVID-19. Uh, that's clearly a big one. The other are going to be the, the long-term consequences of, of long COVID uh, in, in populations and, and suddenly realizing that all of the horrors that we've just been through may be the beginning of something even bigger. I think that's that's a big one. And then I'm also worried about all the anti-vaccine activities, whether that spills over into other childhood vaccinations and parents start questioning the need to vaccinate against yeah, their kids against measles to, right? or, or, or or cervical yeah. cancer. So, so, so yeah, that, but, that that no doubt is going to happen. Unfortunately, I think as you right. can tell, I'm a warrior. Uh, but so. you're a warrior. You have you have a you have a here. You know we really differ differ, uh, and it's just right here. Well, first of all, you're seeing kids. I'm seeing adults. Uh, so that gives us a little different uh, sort of uh, uh, risk reward diathesis in our head. And the other is, I have a positive bias, and you have a negative bias. You're a little negative. You really, you're a warrior, and I, I want to, I want to cheer on and you know, conquer. Get, let's get this thing. And uh, well, on the other hand, I've devoted you know, my life to something called neglected diseases, so I do have some optimism. <laughs> so that's right for the for the for the underdog, though. It's back to the back to the the people to worry about. Uh, so listen, I, it has been a, an, a, a monumental privilege to have you here, and, and we appreciate it so much. You spent and it's the, been a privilege for me to speak with day. you, and I, I appreciate that opportunity, and and look forward uh, and, to staying and, uh, in touch I, because we'll see how this thing goes. And please let me go make noise in Washington on your behalf. I think that's scandalous, scandalous that they are not helping you fund this thing, or at least helping put the structure in place where somebody else can help you fund it. it just seems insane to me that they're not doing that. And that's, again, somebody, somebody's judgment is off as you're, we were talking about the CDC's failures. Somebody doesn't have really like keen judgment. I don't, I don't know what's going on there. Or maybe the bureaucracy has gotten too cumbersome where people with well, judgment I think, can't. I think government agencies just take on a life of their own sometime, unfortunately. Yeah, I think that's it. I think that's right. Come that's, back soon. If that's you... Dr. Hotos's next book, Preventing the Next Pandemic. Susan? Come back wife? soon. Please, we hope so. Especially oh, so don't much. let the... Uh, Idiots get you down. Yeah, don't let the negativity. You know, it's you're an important voice, thank and you. you should be treated as such. And 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 thank you for the new vaccine. That's a that's a, a major deal. And uh, thank you so much. And go to your next interview. <laughs> thank you. All the best to you. Yes, sir. Thank you. You too. God bless. Bye bye. Uh, all right. So let us. We've got the clubhouse still going. I'm watching you guys on restream. I'm sorry, I've not been very attentive there. It's been kind of exciting for me to talk to Dr. Hotez. Um, whether he had you had another interview, yeah, he has another interview to go to, but I can now take your, uh, let's see, wait a second here. 1% chance of external is serious. Can't say one to 1%. Uh, I'm not quite sure what you're saying, Jill. I think I understand what you're getting at. It's, it's a little more complicated than that. What you're saying there, I think, 
Um, and uh, what I'm going to do is take a little break and then come back and maybe take a couple calls off. Uh, COVID calls. COVID calls off of a Clubhouse. We'll be right back. Let's talk about our friends at Hydrolyte. I can't say enough about Hydrolyte. You hear me talk about them all the time. It gets me through workouts and medical procedures and colonoscopies. And COVID, it absolutely contributed to my recovery from COVID. Hydration is key to feeling healthy. And there's never been a time when that could be more important. We're in the height of cold flu season. Every headache has got you testing for COVID. Staying hydrated can keep the questionable symptoms at bay, and there's nothing better than Hydrolyte to get it done. Taking their hydration formula one step further, now there is Hydrolyte Plus Immunity. It starts with their fast-absorbing electrolytes and adds a host of great ingredients, plus each single-serve, easy-pour drink mix contains 1,000 milligrams of vitamin C and 300 milligrams of elderberry extract. Hydrolyte Plus Immunity comes in convenient, easy-pour powder sticks that rapidly dissolve in water to make a great-tasting drink that is a 75% less sugar than your typical sports drink. It uses all-natural flavors. It's gluten-free, dairy-free, caffeine-free, non-GMO, and even vegan. Hydrolyte Plus Immunity is also now available in ready-to-drink bottles at the Walmart next to the pharmacy, or as always, you can find it by visiting hydrolyte.com slash Dr. Drew. That is H-Y-D-R-A-L-Y-T-E dot com slash Dr. Drew. And be sure to use that code Dr. Drew 25 at checkout for a special discount. Oh, my uh, dog Rex just came in here, leaned his head in and just threw up all over the place. <laughs> and so Susan is having to clean it all up. He just said, looked in like, hi, how are you guys? I want to show you something. Okay. <laughs> Um, in the, uh, wings here, I've got Dr. Bruce Heishober, Dr. Bruce from the Corolla world. I'm seeing if I can get Bruce up to, uh, come on up here and, and give us his thoughts. He was listening quietly during Dr. Hotez's presentation. I'm wondering what he's thinking. Or Dr. He's... Bruce, and don't forget to get your Dr. Drew bobblehead oh, for yeah, VD. Oh yeah, Susan wanted me to point this out. It's coming up. VD's coming. Get your bobblehead. Somebody said. <laughs> DrDrew.com slash shop. There it is. So that's Susan's masterpiece with the help of Alana and her husband. Uh, I think Dr. Bruce is not. There you are. Okay. I don't think Dr. Bruce there. figuring out technology is always the fun fun part. <laughs> yeah. Let's. Uh, you bring, can do it, Bruce. Just just unmute yourself. In the meantime, I've got Chuck Chuck here. <laughs> People have their hands up and give them a chance to come in here. Uh, Chuck. Joe is Dr. Bruce. Joe is Dr. There you are. Hey, Bruce. How you doing? Good. Did so you, am I? Is you're is on. Doctor H. Doctor H is gone. No, no, it's just you and me. He had me. to go talk to the Surgeon General. Yeah, he had to talk to the Surgeon General. He, okay. He, hang on, it's uh, Doctor Bruce Heishober. He is, uh, you know, from our work over at Corolla's World. He's been listening quietly while I talked to Doctor Hotez and uh, Weekly Infusion. Yes, the podcast we that we used to do. And what's I'm you? a failed podcaster. Let's face it, Susan. What <laughs> no, can I say? no, Dr. no. I'm just Spaz. lazy. Dax reminds me, Doctor. <laughs> I forget the Doctor Spaz part, but yes, Doctor Spaz. Yeah. You got to come back soon. So what's going oh. on? What was your concern? Okay. No. So, well, I was going to ask him, you know, whether it's logistic or heuristic, it, it just seems like if I've just had COVID, even if I'm vaccinated, if I just have COVID two weeks ago, say, and then I'm mandated to get um, a booster next week, just the way I think as a physician, well, maybe it'd be better to wait a few weeks or of a course. couple months. Because, of course. Right. But that's not what's happening. People that have had COVID and then they're going to get fired if they don't get the vaccine. I, the I know. Next I week. think, I think what he would say is bureaucracies are a problem, which is sort of what he and I were agreeing on that bureaucracies are not set up to respond to the needs of this present moment at all. And, uh, that's one of the lessons in all this. That you know the, what? I so, just told you this the other day. I went to a restaurant and I just had COVID, but I've also had three vaccines. But I asked the girl at the front, she goes, oh, can I see your vaccine card? And I said, what if I just had COVID and I could prove that and I haven't had the vaccine? Because a lot of people have had COVID. They can't, they don't want to get the vaccine because they just had COVID. It's she even said, crazier, Susan. She it's goes, just, you could sit outside. Yeah. And I was like, oh, come on. You gotta it's even crazier. Me. They don't ask you if you have COVID. You could have active exactly. COVID and walk in. I know. And no one asks you, if do you, you have COVID? You could have COVID. And I, That's the craziness. I had that opportunity too in New York to go out and, but they would have asked me for my vaccine, not if I had COVID. Right. That's right. So you Oh, see. it's crazy. So I have a patient last week I'm talking to her. She goes, well, I want to take my kid up to family reunion in Sacramento. But the pediatrician said my one-year-old should not go because uh, people are crazy and anti-vaxxers up there. They don't get vaccinated. There's, there's a more virulent strain probably that's going to occur. Don't go. And I went, what? So I called the chief of peds and he said, that's insane. He said that the prevalence up there is 20%. Riverside County is 53%. 
So some of the, even doctors, some of the- Well, what I'm noticing is this is the death of math and this is how humans do, <laughs> no, and how humans do poorly with probability risk. So so you heard me talk to Dr. Hotez where I said, well, you're taking a healthy 19 year old and you, you have a 0.00013 chance, one eight chance of getting him sick or 0.2 chance getting, 0. 000, you know, 0.002 chance getting him sick versus a 0.00013 chance of getting COVID and getting seriously ill. Um, how, you know, I don't know how to make that decision. He's like, oh, I've seen too much horrible things. And I thought, oh my goodness, you know, we, we are, we're, we're really biased. We're, we we got to really pay attention to our biases because he, he, he Dr. Hotez is very worried about long COVID. I'm not very worried about long COVID. I had long COVID and he's extremely worried about that. Now it's not unjust. He's not wrong. It's just his bias takes him to over amplify that risk. Maybe he's right. I don't think so, because everybody I've seen with long COVID recovers with no neurological sequelae. Well, might we see dementia in 10 years? We might, but we must also might see cardiomyopathy from the myocarditis in 10 years. So I, I, I don't know how to, these are really, really hard decisions. It's not, it's, and so the point being, I, I was listening to Peter Atiyah's uh, podcast, which I, mm -hmm. I cannot recommend strong enough. He was talking to Monica Gandhi and Vinay Prasad, my, my favorite people. And he said, you know, I was asked to, adjudicate in a family squabble around the vaccine. They had, there was a 35-year-old son and he just didn't want to get the vaccine. And so they asked me to help convince him. And he came in and the parents were going apeshit. They were going nuts on their son. And finally, Atia said, well, what do you think your son's risk of death is from COVID if he gets it? Oh, it's 50%. And I thought, right. <laughs> I thought, oh my God! See, this is the problem. People are people are not given the right information to be able to understand the relative risks of these things. And so, every, because it's all been hysteria, people are all over the place. And I don't blame them because they've not been well, given the yeah, right but, information. But plus, it's undermined the physician's ability to give that Correct. information and Correct. reason with the patient. Correct. The other thing I was going to ask him is, I was going to, I mean, you know, I hate to even mention hydroxychloroquine, but it was an example of bureaucracy. It's. I was going to say it's a zinc. It's a zinc ionophore, right? It's anti inflammatory. We, can't, we literally, right? we literally can't talk about it because we'll get kicked off YouTube. So we probably gonna... will, anyways. Okay. No, okay. So example, we're, right? So but you let can me find just us on Twitch, and you can find us on Facebook, <laughs> and you can find us on Twitter, and you can find us on Rumble. Everybody, I mean, but isn't kicked this, off of YouTube. Isn't this, isn't this amazing? Yeah. I mean, what country are we in? Okay, so let me let me as an attorney rephrase my question yes, for the for Please. the plaint as a plaintiff's attorney. Please. The use of azithromycin mm. is based on its mild antiviral effect, but mostly its anti-inflammatory effect, right? True. So nobody squeals about azithromycin, which is to me more insane than that other thing we can't talk Correct. about. Correct. And, and way, way less utility and doxycycline, colchicine. Yeah, I know. But don't mention those other things. So yeah. and and to me it's just I want to sit down with a patient, it's like you're queuing on, you got the jab, doc, what's wrong with you? You're crazy. You're going to, you know, you're going to start. And then the, on the other end, you have the other extreme. And it's just, can I be a doctor and just As, a, as a, our friend, Dr. Z-Dog says, the COVIDians and the COVIDiots. We have two camps, COVIDians <laughs> and COVIDiots. And, and no one really has the right information because there's been a massive public health failure of providing it. Think how good we were with HIV and AIDS, how people came to understand that so quickly. We were really good at it. Why didn't we do it again now? That, that, that'll be my, I'll go to my grave asking that question. It'll be on my tombstone. Why, did we, why didn't we do it the way we knew how to do it right? Why did we, and, and Dr. Hotez said, oh, it's because it's a respiratory pathogen. It was more of an emergency. I was like, I, I get it. But still, yeah. we could have adjusted course at any point. So, but yeah. you know what? It's like religion. It's like, you know, you can be religious and have your free thoughts, but just don't try to sell it to me. Oh, but Susan, when you're religious, there are people that are sinners that are dirty and that, that you know, if you have COVID, you're dirty or you must have been a sinner to get it. it our, our brain does weird things yeah. when we get into religious thinking. And you're right. It is religious thinking, but it, but it has so had, had untoward effect. And that's why I just rather keep in the realm of cognitive distortions. We need to watch our cognitive biases. We have to understand our brains don't, they're not perfect instruments. They work on the influence of biases. We have to watch our biases. My bias is a positive bias. I have to watch it. I have to police it or I'll think too positively and not not worry enough about the, the downsides. Um, I have found that as a good way to go through life. I wouldn't want to go the other way, but I, I understand from an evolutionary perspective, we need both forces at work to get the best outcome. Right, Bruce? 
Wow, you lost me as usual, Drew. You're way beyond no, me. Please, you're just. I know. I'm so deep. No, I'm dazed now. I don't know what to think. That is just yours and Susan's ADD. When you I know. Hear that, you'll understand. <laughs> I know you'll exactly. Understand that I was saying something. It's very like simple. blah 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 blah. And then it'll ask me a question. I'll go what. <laughs> All right, Bruce, I got to take some more calls here, but thank you for being around okay. for this. I, are you, everything talk good you. with you? And you want to say, talk about anything else before I let you go? No, no, no. I was going to tell you, I got a, another Kratom person, if you haven't done that podcast yet, a COO of a company that's got a very good story. So about, tell me, thumbnail it. So, so somebody that was, he's basically, he runs a $22 million company and he had uh, somebody recommended Kratom for his pain. And uh, he got horribly addicted yeah, to it. Yeah. And it's just the ignorance about it. So anyway, I'll, I'll send you his information. Okay. But no, right. thanks a lot Thank for taking my call. Dr. Right, Spaz, everybody. There he is. All right, let me try again with uh, Chuck. Chuck, who's not there anymore. Let me see if I can get him off the, of the audience. <laughs> Hold on. Chuck, Chuck got bored uh, and left. I think that's you, Chuck. Chuck, there we go. Yes, we'll invite you to speak again. Sorry about that. No, he's still there. Uh, Chuck. There I am. Here you go. Hey, can you hear me? I hear you now. Oh, great. Yeah. I forgot I had to raise my hand again. It's okay. Uh, I, I was looking for you. It's all good. <laughs> Thanks. So um, there, there was a lot of discussion about why the approach from the government mm -hmm. and some of the disinformation. And I, I want to ask this, you know, is there a, do you think that there's maybe a plausible reason? And I don't know if this is, this is true or not. That's, that's why I'm asking the question. For an emergency use the authorization, doesn't that, that require that there can't be an alternative uh, therapy? I, I believe that is does, true, uh, so, but I think it so, really technically is alternative therapy. I, now, I may be wrong on this, so please, I'll look at the restream. You guys can straighten me out if I'm wrong. I think it has to be alternative, alternative therapies in that class in that particular approach to treatment. So in other words, you could have you could have treatments, but there might be something superior with a different technology or a different biology attached to it that they will approve you for. I think that's the that's the nuance that people get kind of screwed up about. But I don't know for sure. Yeah. So I mean that's what I was just trying to look for. And then, you know, because I you know, I think it's important to to have conversation about it. Oh yeah. Because oh, yeah. there there's uh you know I think if you got in the room with the right people that had a fair conversation, you know, if if that is the case, then we need to fix that. You know, if well, that's really the case because in 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 war and you know pandemic we're, we're battling against this to try to save lives yeah you want as many tools in your toolkit to address a problem here here listen and, and the insanity of all i i naturally i think this is why joe rogan is in trouble right now because he has that same kind of instinct i have which is when people have been silenced i why i want to hear what they have to say let, let me talk to them i i'll talk to both sides I, i'll talk to everybody i'm just interested in expanding my fund of knowledge but i'm automatically drawn to people that are silenced because I'm not going to get to hear it otherwise. And I I don't know. It could be an important opinion. It could be bullshit. I don't know. But you're right. There should be, there should be like there's always been in, in science and medicine. It's what it has always been. And why this was different is just that's scandal number four. I'm putting that scandal on my on my on my list of scandals. I, I, list I believe of scandals. it's all people driven. <laughs> I mean, when it all comes down to it, uh, it's it's not a company. That makes the company it's the people that make the of course company. of course so what do we do what do we got uh, so, wrong what are we getting wrong or is there something I, I i started thinking about the notion that we've become histrionic we've become hysterical uh that our personalities have been infected with this histrionic quality which i'm not sure that's right that's something i've been thinking about what do you think i i i i really just think it's 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 evolution of the you know the discourse you know you see that and the lack of uh, you know credible information you know, I, I think you could always even you know, I, I've, throughout my life i've tried to say to other people is you, know, you could take a perfectly sane person you know great person you take out out their pillars of success and take their financial take their away from take their yeah. the ability to have a place a, a dwelling a home yeah. you know and, and 
you can turn that person into a criminal. Well, there, there's, there, there, I think to, if I could uh, reframe that, you're, you're, I think you're right. I, I would put it at, there's no telling. There's no telling how somebody's going to behave when you pull all the everything. It's the yes. same as if you drop them in the middle of the ocean. There's no telling of how far they'd go to yeah. survive. And I think you're, that you're saying the same thing I'm saying, actually. That's exactly what I'm saying. We, we, because of the circumstances, whatever's going on in our internal constructs right now turned us into hysterics. Now, maybe that's the way it always happens. I don't think so. I think it's uh, something to the fourth turning or the present moment or something. Um, and, you know, as such, I think we need to really have some very smart people thinking very, very carefully about what just happened. Chucks, thanks, thanks for the comment. I'm going to wrap things up. We thank Dr. Peter Hotez for being with us. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help. Yeah.